Well, um, <laughs> Jonah's an asparagus. Do I, do I have your attention? He's an asparagus. According to VeggieTales, uh, I'm reading this, Silas told me about this book called Liberating Jonah by a guy named Miguel de la Torre. Uh, de la Torre and um, it's a book on uh, an ethics of reconciliation written through the lens of Jonah. And actually, that's how he begins his introduction. He says, Jonas and Asparagus, at least according to the popular 2002 Christian film, Jonah, VeggieTales movie, moviegoers were introduced to a Jonah who proclaimed God's word, specifically, quote, to play nice, do good, and wash their hands, end quote. However, when God told Jonah the Asparagus to go to the city of Nineveh, a dirty city characterized by vegetables that slap each other across the face with raw fish, Jonah ran in the opposite direction. He wanted nothing to do with a people that participated in such filthy habits. Although Jonah wanted to see them pulverized, the prophet Jonah, along with, his, with the moviegoers, learned the important message of the story of Jonah. God gives second chances. And then he goes on to say, with presentations like this, is it any wonder that many consider Jonah to be some type of fairy tale? Um, like many of you, I didn't grow up in the church, but uh, Jonah is very familiar to me. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, Perhaps because it, for us it evokes deep memories of our childhood, like many of you. VeggieTales, Pinocchio, uh, which is like a, that's, that's Jonah. Pinocchio and Geppetto and the whale. That's Jonah, if you didn't know. Um, you've had a week of VBS like we're about to have, and the theme was Jonah and the whale, right? And that's not to put down VBS at all. Um, what it's to say is that it, 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 it puts De La Torre's question in sort of bold relief, um, is it any wonder with such presentations of this story uh, that it's just been relegated in our minds and our theologies to a children's story about a man, a big fish, and God's desire that we live clean lives? Just clean up your life, right? And I'm sorry, but that's not what Jonah's about. Jonah's not an asparagus. He's not. And uh, there's a there's another popular culture, uh, maybe not popular, that's the wrong term, but there's another cultural allusion to Jonah where I want to kind of pull this out for us as we kind of enter in by Herman Melville and Moby Dick. We all read it, right? Raise your hand if you skipped it in high school. Yeah, that was me. Cliff's Notes. So, or Wikipedia today for those that are still in school. <laughs> Father Mapple, who delivers this sermon on the book of Jonah. I don't know if you knew this, but um, he's asking his congregation, which are these sailors, why does Jonah not show remorse for disobeying God when he's inside the fish? He's just mad. I mean, throughout the book, he's just mad at God. He runs away from God. He's mad at God. He continues to be mad at God. Why, Mapple asks, is Jonah so mad at God? So that's, about it. that's what his sermon's about. And here's, his, here's a quote from the sermon. Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, 48 verses, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of Scripture. Yet, what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson it is to us, this prophet. What a noble thing is this canticle in the fish's belly, which is his prayer. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the water, seaweed and all the slime of the sea is all about us. But what is this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it's a two-stranded lesson. A lesson to us as sinful men and women. Men is his vernacular, but men and women. And a lesson to us, 
me as the pilot of the living God. As sinful men and women, it's a lesson to us all because it is a story of sin. Hard-heartedness, suddenly awakened fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally the deliverance of joy. That's Jonah. And I love that because uh, Jonah is, is really me and he's you. I mean, he's not just an asparagus. He's, uh, he's telling us almost as a character everything we need to know about God and ourselves. Everything. Um, in just 48 verses, the entire Bible is exposited to us in the most profound and clear sense. Truths about ourselves, truths about the character of God. God started to shape our lives. He's this powerfully instructive individual about what it looks like to live as people of hope in a world like we are today. That's just being um, separated by nationalism and racism and any other ism you can envision. It's all in Jonah. All of it. Um, And so Jonah confronts us with big questions about who we are, who God is, and how God desires to shape our lives. Far bigger questions, I'm just going to say, than any popular culture version of the story that we learn as children uh, confronts us with. As good as those stories are, they're not the true story of Jonah. The true story of Jonah is so much better. And I just really hope throughout these weeks that you'll tune in, that you'll um, listen online, that you'll show up. Because I think, um, as we study this, we will be shaped. We'll be shaped. So this morning, I want to I start with God. Uh, Jonah 1, 1 to 3, as you look at this theologically, is like Genesis 1 and 1 and 2. Um, it's, it's going deep into Jonah's story. Uh, it's where we learn about the character of our God and who this God is that's confronting Jonah um, in, the, in the intervening or the next chapters. Um, and so I want to invite us to reflect on a couple of truths about who God is, that we worship a God. These are highlighted in your bulletins, if you'd like to take notes, that we worship a God who issues a stunning call to us, and then we worship a God who desires to extend extraordinary mercy. We worship a God who issues a stunning call, and we worship a God who desires to extend extraordinary mercy, okay? That's our sermon this morning, okay? So first, verses 1 and 2, which Kurt read, God issues a stunning call. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And by beginning that way, Jonah's listeners, which is us today, will know this is a prophet. That's the usual way if you read any of the prophets, that the prophets begin. God uses men and women to convey the words and the messages he wants to convey to Israel, who at this time and many times in history are experiencing crisis and are lost. And so God wants to bring them back. However, by verse 2, his readers would have realized this prophetic account is unlike anything they'd ever heard. And everything they'd heard to that point was different than this. And here's what I mean by that. He's calling this Hebrew prophet Jonah to leave Israel and go to a Gentile city, something that was theretofore unheard of. Uh, No prophet uh, except Jonah had ever been called to leave Israel and then prophesy to the nations. Ezekiel, who we just studied, prophesies about the nations to Israel. Jeremiah, same. Isaiah, same. All those prophecies are kind of, you could say, issued from the comfort of their own home. Jonah, however, is called to get up and go. 
His mission is unprecedented. He alone is called to leave Israel and go to this place called Nineveh, which is just a radical summons, and here's why. If you go back into the Old Testament, the Assyrian Empire, uh, which Nineveh is one of the three capital cities of, um, is one of the most violent empires on the history of planet Earth. Uh, Nineveh, by the way, is about 400 miles north of present-day Baghdad. So we're talking about Iraq. We're not talking about Syria. This is Assyria, okay? Just, I think that confuses many of us as moderns. Um, so the Assyrians were like the so-called Nazis or the ISIS of the ancient Near East. They were terrorizing everybody around them. So as Tim Keller writes in this book he's just published on Jonah, which I'd recommend to you, it's called Prodigal Prophet. Um, great little ex- exposition of Jonah if you want to read along and learn. I'm reading it as well, as long as uh, De La Torre's book. He says this, Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling as a history, uh, history as we know. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake their victims' hands in mockery as they're dying. I mean, this puts Game of Thrones to shame. Uh, they force friends and family members to parade with decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues, stretched their bodies with ropes so they'd be flayed alive and their skins displayed in the city. It's awful when you think about it. And it just goes on and on. You can read the, I would not encourage you to, but you can read the history of Assyria. Um, in fact, they did this for hundreds of years, and by doing so, they spread so much terror. And when, you get, when they get to Israel, Israel in the north ceased to exist. You can read about this in First and Second Kings. For hundreds of years, the Assyrian Empire is terrorizing Israel from the north. And Jonah is being called by God to go to Assyria, to one of the three capital cities of Assyria, Nineveh. Do you see why this is such a puzzling calling? Like, God's not pulling punches with Jonah. He's, he's, he's telling this guy to go to the biggest, baddest, meanest, most powerful city in the world, go to the center of that city, and tell them to repent, to turn away from their evil, which they had been doing so much evil. So let's just think about this for a minute in terms of our own calling, like, or our own world. Like, can you imagine someone going into 1945-43 Berlin, middle of the World War, getting in the center of that city and saying, hey, you need to stop. Can you imagine in the Cold War, someone going to Moscow and doing the same? Here's one thought I I thought of this week. Can you imagine somebody going to Montgomery or Little Rock or Selma in 1955 or 57 or 63? I mean, we can imagine that because we've seen it. You know what's going to happen. At best, you're going to be ridiculed and denied and laughed at and beaten. At worst... You're going to be jailed and tortured and executed. So Jonah has this in mind. He knows that's the outcome. They're not just going to not like it. They're going to probably kill him. It's unreasonable. It's irrational. It's absurd. It's downright preposterous. Uh, They're not just passively evil. They're actively evil. And thus the temptation, I think, within Jonah, just reading into a story a bit, the response I think he would want to have to God's call is the response I think any of us would have, which is eye for an eye. That's the conventional wisdom of their day. And I'd say we kind of carry that forward, eye for an eye, tit for tat. You, do, you know, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to take it back, right? Uh, or we're in the Pacific Northwest, avoidance, you know. We're a little passive aggressive. 
well, we're not going to go near you. You live your life. I'm going to live my life. Your truth, my truth. We don't agree. We're going to agree to disagree, right? Uh, But to share the truth of love, that's a scripture verse, right? To press forward as God is calling Jonah to do in hopes that these people are going to be transformed by the word of God and God's presence, that's generally not on our hearts. We don't generally think that way when we've experienced bad things, when bad things have been done to us. Nor was it on Jonah's heart. He didn't want them forgiven. He wanted them suffering. He didn't want them transformed. He wanted them to pay, pay the price, right? So have us, I want to have us think in these first moments, just by way of application, what if God were to call you to get up and go to Nineveh? What if God were to call you to get up and go to a place you didn't want to go? Like, think for a moment, where's your Nineveh? Where's your Nineveh? Uh, this might be a stretch for many of us. Like I said, we're in Seattle, and, uh, and so we're a little isolated from the rest of the world. <laughs> and Nineveh is probably a place we haven't thought much about. But just think with me. Where is a possible Nineveh for you? It might be a place where the politics of that place are just antithetical to you. Then, thus, Nineveh could be a space you inhabit when you go online. It could be Facebook. It could be the comments section of any uh, social media platform you use. It could be right here in the Puget Sound. It could be right here in this church. There might be Ninevites here. Just saying. You don't have to go halfway in the world. This is a neighboring nation to Israel. Perhaps Nineveh is a theological move from you. I mean, literally, Nineveh represented a people who did not share Jonah's faith or theological convictions. Um. They're not pro-life. They're not, you know, peace. They're not all these things that maybe we feel like we have to be. And thus their ethics and values and the way they express themselves are different. Are there people and there are spaces in your life, in our world? Again, it might be right here in our community. It might be right here in our city. It might be right here within our church that are Nineveh to you, that you're afraid to go to. You would never dare because sharing the truth in love is too hard. Uh, could be a physical geographic space. Like, let's just set, solid, set up politics and ethics for a moment. Just assume Jonah, like Nineveh, represented a different culture, different language, different geography, different food, just a different place. Like, uh, how many of you are from Ohio? Um, so it's like, a, sorry, it's Ohio. There's only one of you. So poor Abby here, our Ohioan. Ohioan? Ohioan? I know there's people from Minnesota and stuff, so I was just like trying to find a state that nobody wants to go to. But uh, <laughs> I love you, Abby. Um, think of this for a moment. Nineveh could be a, a move from the comfort of your neighborhood. Um, wherever that neighborhood is. It could be View Ridge, Wedgwood. could be Pinehurst, where I live. To a place to you that feels so uncomfortable to be in. Like you're not known... Now you're in a racial minority. Uh, you no longer enjoy access to good schools, quote-unquote good schools. We, we put quotes around that. Parks, creature conference, coffee shops. You're in a place where you're the other now. And there's a lot of others, others in our community uh, that we don't recognize, that feel like they're in Nineveh. They're here. They're friends of ours. They're in our community. Uh, they're gay, they're lesbian, they're a person of color. 
And they're feeling, they're just feeling what Joe and I think is feeling. So what if God called you to go? Uh, Would you go? Would you go if God called you to a hard place? So in 2009, uh, just to put this in a frame of my own life, uh, I I went to seminary 2002 to 2005, got married 2002 to my wife Elizabeth, and uh, then I went to seminary at Princeton in New Jersey and finished that time and then was invited to come back to Seattle, which is like the dream. You know, I don't want to get stuck on the East Coast, right? And so we come back to Seattle, I helped plant a church on Capitol Hill, and I did that for several years. Um, and a few, uh, there's a few of our, my fr- fellow church members here, because that church is, you know, that's my legacy, I guess. So that church is no longer around. Um, so my part of that church wound down in 2009, and so I started to kind of circulate what's my resume, because I was like, well, that's all I got. <laughs> you know, like, I got I'm div. What am I going to do? I got to be a pastor. And here's what I did. I said to God, this is when I was working at that coffee shop, cafe. I said, okay, God, I'll stay in the Puget Sound, like Pacific Northwest. I'll go anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, anywhere, like Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, Oregon, even Oregon, you know? And, I, and so, <laughs> and for weeks, nothing, like literally nothing. So then I said, okay, God, I'm going to really open up my hands on my life. My parents live in Denver. I'll stay west of the Rockies. I'll be your servant anywhere. I mean, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, just not Southern California. <laughs> I mean, this is the prayer I'm praying. Um, and the reason not Southern California is my wife, as part of our marriage agreement, said she'd never live in Southern California. So that wasn't on me. I was like, hey, I'll go to Southern California. Beaches, Disneyland, you know. And guess what happened? Weeks went by, nothing, nothing, nothing. So I was at a, uh, my daughter at this time is a couple years old, and I was at a birthday party uh, with a friend of the Davidsons uh, that were part of our church, and we're doing the birthday, two-year-old birthday party thing. And I'm like months into this, this call, looking for a call. And I'm like, God, I'll go anywhere. <laughs> and I didn't ask Elizabeth. And literally, like within days, I got a phone call from a pastor in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, who met a friend of mine from California at a conference. And I'm like, why didn't she call me to come to her church? And that's because I wasn't praying to go to California probably. But um, this guy called me, and his name's Alf, like the alien life form, you know, Alf. I was like, really? And so went and visited, and the rest of the story is, is there. I, we went to Pennsylvania for almost five years. And uh, that was a hard move for us because... Um, we had left the East Coast to come back to Seattle, um, and there was so much about living there that I'll get into in a moment that was hard. And I realized I just likened Pennsylvania and Nineveh, um, and so I apologize to the Pennsylvanians in the room and the Ohioans. Um, uh, I'm not saying that. The focus, what I'm trying to say here is the focus, focus me for a moment on the nature of God's call, which is a calling that is always intended to transform us. So would you go? is the question. If God called you, would you go? And the reason, listen, the reason God is calling Jonah, yes, there's a word that Nineveh needs to hear, and we're going to get into that. They need to hear. They need to be changed. But the first thing that God wants to do is change Jonah. He wants to change Jonah. And that's what he's doing with you when he calls you. He always 
wants to change you. You're in a process of transformation. And so Pennsylvania was a place that changed my life. Uh, changed our family. We had our son Elliot out there. And the church surrounded us in that, in that time. And I had never had an experience like that. And so when we came back here, I was much more open to be surrounded by a church. And that's why many of you I just consider friends. And I'd love to be friends with all of you. I'm, uh, and that's unique to me. But I learned that in Pennsylvania. It changed the way uh, I ministered. I was exposed to so much death. I did more funerals a year than I did weddings and, and baptisms combined. There's just an older church. And so I was in the hospital every week. I was doing funerals almost every week, maybe just once a month. People much older than me. And uh, people who have been married 60, 50 years. And uh, that changed me. I got to walk with people who suffered. And I don't claim to do it perfectly or well, but it exposed me to the need to do that. Um, it put me in touch in that time. Remember, this is 2009 with the realities of our economic situation. This is the steel, this is like the slate belt, the rust belt of Pennsylvania. Bethlehem is where Bethlehem steel used to be. And it's just a crumbling, or at the time, a crumbling town. And so I, you know, I had voted a certain way in 2000, whatever, and now I'm in this town that didn't. I'm in a political minority, <laughs> and, and I'm learning what it's all about. I'm learning firsthand amongst this decaying steel town as I'm living with people who built it, kind of their, what their experience of life has been. As a missions pastor, as a missions pastor at church, I got to travel to China I got to go to the Appalachia. I got to learn about what God's doing in these places. I would have never gone. So Pennsylvania transformed me in a way that Seattle never could have. I would have just been hanging out at a coffee shop on Capitol Hill, doing the Capitol Hill thing, right? And God said, I have so much more for you, Jack. And that's, what, that's the way God's call works with us. God's call to Jonah is like all these calls we experience. Though it's unique in its context, literally to Nineveh, in a broad sense, in a, it really, it's the way God's call works with all of us. Jonah is a reminder to us that God's call is not usually easy. It's not usually comfortable. Um, that God would call us to things we'd normally not plan for ourselves. God would call us to hard spaces. Like God is critiquing the conventional wisdom, follow your passion. Do what makes you feel good. Like God is saying, no, that, yeah, I want you to enjoy your life, but my calling on you is much bigger than that. I want to use your gifts. I've built you to be an agent of transformation. So I'm going to send you to places that need that. And those spaces are going to be hard. Um, So what if God were to call you to Nineveh? Would you go? As you think about our city, or about our life, about your life, about your future, about the state of our world and your contribution. Some of you are in the last third of your life. Some of you have retired. There's a few of you in the room. And yet you're still called by God. God is not done with you yet. He's not done. Most of you are like in the midst of what you define as your working years, your vocational years. And the world tells us, here's how you live out that vocation. What? Earn as much money as you can so you can retire as early as you can and live, what? As comfortable as you can for the rest of your life. Right? Is that what the Bible is teaching? Is it? I'm not saying that that's bad to earn money and retire. I'm just saying God often calls us to things that are not easy. 
And so he might be saying, I have things within your gift set I want to utilize and use. And it might not mean a greater bottom line. It might not mean an earlier retirement. It might not mean that you get to live a comfortable life. It might mean something very different. Some of you are still being prepared for what God has called you to do, your students. There's a few of you in the room. And I, as I tell my kids all the time, you get to be part, you have an opportunity to be part of what God's doing in our world. So as you decide what to study, think about, think about it through the lens of God's gifts to you. Think about your contribution to the world. Think about how God could use you. Um, don't run away from God. This is what Jonah's doing. He's running away from God. And God's calling him so he doesn't have to deal with the hardness of that call. So if God called you to Nineveh, would you go? That's the first question that I'd like you to, us to reflect on. To so the people you don't want to go with, or to the place you don't want to go to. Here's the second thing. I'll be a little more brief. Uh, we know that Jonah doesn't go. <laughs> Uh, and so here I'll read verse 3. It's in verse 3, second truth about God. Jonah got up, went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa, found a ship, headed to Tarshish, paid the fare, went on board, joined those going to Tarshish to get as far, as far away from God as he could get. To get as far away from God as he could get. Or as far away from his calling, you can imagine, as he could get. So the bottom line, Jonah didn't go. God says go. Jonah says no, right? Uh, he goes the exact opposite direction. Jonah flees to Tarshish. Tarshish is believed to be on the sort of outermost rim of the known world at that time. And so Jonah basically does the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. God calls him to go east. He goes west. He directed, he directed travel over land, walk over land, over this, through this desert to Nineveh. Jonah goes out to sea. He's sent to a big city, and he bought a one-way ticket to nowhere, right? He's called to proclaim God's grace, and he only longed for one thing, God's wrath. That's what he wanted, God's wrath. Hey, call me to proclaim God's wrath. I'll go. <laughs> That's Jonah. I'm not you. Uh, I'd be the grace guy. But, and in that way, Jonah responds to, his response to God's call can be looked at from like a motivational and behavior level. Like his behavior level we get he goes the other direction. On the motivational level, which is the inside, his heart, um, we, we actually don't see that right here. You have to go up forward to chapter 4 of Jonah. And we're going to be there in a couple of weeks, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this verse. But if you go to Jonah chapter 4, um, in verse 2, it says, Jonah says this to God. He's having a conversation with God. This is kind of part 2. He says, he says to God, didn't I tell you this would happen, God? That, that's why I fled to Tarshish. I knew you'd spare the Ninevites. I just knew it. <laughs> I knew you were a compassionate and merciful God. That's why I fled. I knew it. And so here's the astonishing reason Jonah took off, why he, was, he fled to Tarshish. He wasn't afraid of failure. He wasn't afraid of, of going and failing, like not being listened to really, although I think I would have been. He wasn't even really afraid of death. I don't think, though I painted that portrait that this is going to get him killed. You know what he's afraid of? He's afraid of success. He's afraid that they're going to repent. He's afraid that it's going to work. 
that he's going to walk down those streets and Nineveh is going to hear the word of the Lord and they're going to turn to God. And he's afraid of that. Because he wanted nothing more than to see them burn to the ground. Nothing more. He says, the reason I didn't want to go the first time was because I didn't want them to live. I wanted them to die. I want to see them punished. I want them to see the error of their ways. And I knew you'd spare them. I just knew it, God. <laughs> and so here we're seeing something very serious about Jonah's motivation. His, his internal motivation, which is this. At the root of Jonah's disobedience, his running from God, is something the Bible calls self-righteousness. We... Uh, As Paul says, for example, in Romans 2, every human being goes about trying to patch up a righteousness of their own. All of us, he says, have a sort of superiority complex, to put it in my own words. We have have to feel superior to somebody somehow so we can live with ourselves. We feel broken. And so we put ourselves, as Paul says in Romans 2, in a position above others. Um, That's the nature of the human heart. And Jonah's particular form of self-righteousness in this case is racism. He is a racist. Uh, It's a very particular and insidious way we express our self-righteousness in order to feel better than others. Even if you're at the sort of bottom of a society, uh, we see this in our history. If you're a particular social class, you're lower class. If you're a particular ethnic group, you can still look down on somebody below you. Right? Right? This is the story of the South. And we're experiencing the consequences of that throughout our country. I'm not just, it's not just the story of the South. This is the story of our country now. That we're, we've inherited this mindset. It's it's not just a systemic problem. Racism is not just systemic. It is systemic. We have systemic issues in Israel, in Assyria, and Germany, and Rwanda, and the United States. Countless nations have dealt with this. But at the heart of racism is self-righteousness. It's the need, it's a sense we have within ourselves to elevate ourselves about others and sort of say we other people and we say, look at, look at them. They're different. And so we put them in a position below us, in physically. And as bad as, and as evil as that is, that's not the only way to be self-righteous, right? For example, if you're appalled by that racism, many of us would be here in Seattle and bigotry, you can turn your enlightenment into a form of self-righteousness. You can look down your nose at bigots. You can, in particular, you can say, look at them. We're so woke. <laughs> We're so progressive, right? So we allow ourselves to do the very same thing. We scorn people down there, over there, who vote that way, right? And it's a danger when we do that. It's a real danger because we're, we're, we're acting in the same way Jonah was acting. Look down our noses at unenlightened people, narrow-minded people, bigoted people, people who don't have the same core need that we have. But that's not the only way. (laughs) There's more. Happy Sunday. Uh, You can be self-righteous through your religion. So we're here at church, and this is possibly the biggest part of Jonah's trouble. Uh, We're religious like he was. We're moral. So we look down on people who are irreligious sometimes who are immoral. And that makes us feel better at a level than others. Uh, You can do it with your religion, your race. And get this, you can do this when you're messed up. (laughs) Like, I've been messed up for a few weeks, physically, and I can complain in my own heart at other people. They don't know how hard it is. 
can just sit there and seethe, right? And it's a way, and they're insensitive, <laughs> them, 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 right? And some of you have struggled physically with things that I am just beginning to understand. Like this is, I've been in m- many bike accidents. My orthopedic said, maybe this is an opportunity to quit. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 because he rides bikes too, so he knows. But like I'm starting to understand, and, and um, we can use, if we're messed up, we can sometimes sit there and look down our nose at other people and kind of, that can become a form of self-righteousness, right? Or flip it, if you, if you, if you haven't suffered, <laughs> you know, if you've been privileged, if you're educated, uh, you can look down your nose at sort of people who aren't as educated, who look at the books they buy, look at the, their politics, look at their TV, look at their music. Uh, there's so many ways this can get worked out in our lives in a very practical level. And so all this is to say we have a deep need when we're apart from Christ, apart from Christ, to feel better than other people somehow in some way. And that's what Jonah's doing. That's why he flees from God. He's apart from Christ. I know Christ isn't in this story yet, but he is really apart from Christ. I fled, he says, because I was afraid you would help those awful people who have killed us, the good people who've done terrible things to us, they don't, des- they don't deserve your help. We do. And by God, you'll help us by destroying them. Do you see this us versus them stuff? That's right here in Jonah 1. And so the point here I want to make in this first moment of the book of Jonah and why I think it's, it's so important for us to understand this, the reason for it all is that Jonah wasn't in a position to preach grace. That's what he's being called to do. Go to Nineveh, preach. It sounds like fire, but preach grace. He had to first experience it. He had never had an experience of grace. He could not call people to repent. That's what grace is. Grace is a call to repentance. He could not call people to repent. He couldn't preach about sin and grace because he was a stranger to those things. He had never experienced them. That's the meaning of Jonah 2 verse 8. The only verse from Jonah that I've memorized, which is another story for another day. Those that worship worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. There's this prayer in the belly of the whale that Jonah prays, and it's almost like he has a confessional moment. Those that worship worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. I've been worshiping the idol of my religion. I've been worshiping the idol of my nationality. I've been worshiping the idol of my goodness, and I've forfeited my experience, my opportunity to experience grace. And so until he understands that, until Jonah, as they say in AA, let's go and let's God, He cannot be someone who calls others to do the same. None of us can. So we are all Jonah. Until that moment, until the gospel becomes a personal, not a foreign, a mental thing we think about, but a personal experience in our hearts, we cannot proclaim it to others. And here's the gospel, just in case you haven't heard it. The gospel is that all people, all human beings, every person, Ninevites, Jews, Christians, pagans, Gays, straights, black, white, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your pedigree. doesn't matter one ounce of your fiber, your being. Every one of us, it's only by the sheer mercy of God and God's grace toward us that we can be lifted into his family and welcomed into the church. That's the only reason. And if you know that, and the degree you know that, you cannot feel superior to somebody else doesn't matter who you are. If you begin, if you are feeling superior to somebody else, 
that pride will block your experience of the gospel. And God wants to get to Jonah's heart. He wants him to experience the gospel. Which is precisely why we see, when we see Jonah running to Tarshish, just real quick to close, he is thrust into the clutches of a storm. We're going to get into that a little bit next week. And then found, finds himself in the belly of this whale. And here's the, issue, here's the interesting thing. The jaws of that storm and that whale <laughs> are actually God's grace to Jonah. Appears to be pure judgment. Appears like God is like, I'm done with you. You're dead to me. I'm going to find somebody else. It's actually grace. The storm is God's way of getting Jonah off the ship into the whale and desperate enough back onto the beach where he can start over and be given a second chance. And that's what grace is all about. It's God chasing us and intercepting us and pursuing us. God not stopping until he finds us. There's this poem that I was given back in Pennsylvania um, called The Hound of Heaven. Has anybody ever read this, this poem? <laughs> it's by this, from this woman named Pat Henderson. She flipped a, flipped a little note in here once that said, please return, I never did. And I'm pretty sure she's not alive anymore because she was like 100 when she gave it to me. So um, it's like a relic and I feel terrible. But um, it comes to my mind quite a bit and I've never used it in a sermon. And so I'll finish saying this. He wrote, Francis Collins wrote this poem like over 100 years ago. He was a heroin addict. Um, he met a publisher. He was a poet. Met a publisher. Just so you could envision this in Seattle. He met a publisher who introduced him to a monk basically put him into rehab where he experienced freedom from addiction, right? Over 100 years ago. And in that time, he wrote this poem. And here's how the poem begins. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, I upvisted hopes. I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms and chasm fears from the strong feet that followed and followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic insistency, came the following feet and the voice above their beat. See, God's unhurrying, unperturbed, deliberate, insistent, that's the message in these first moments of Jonah. So will we let God in? I mean, are you Jonah today? Are you running from God's call in your life? And you know this. You just know, oh, man, I need to pause for a moment and consider, God, are you calling me to something different? And would God, would you recognize that God in his mercy, even if you are running from his, from his call, is right on your heels and that he loves you beyond anything you can imagine. You know, you're sitting in the doctor's office stunned by the biopsy report. You're in doubt. You, God can't be in this. There's no God. God can't. This is not good. Can there be any good from that? You, you have gotten a rejection letter. You've been laid off. You've given up any hope of finding a job. You know, you're just stuck. You're in doubt. Could there be a God? Intimacy in your marriage is completely dried up. You know, we had a profound start, and now it's not so profound anymore. Could there be a God? Could God be chasing you? Could be God be calling you to something? You're wondering, you know, you sat down to pray for the umpteenth time. We talk about coffee with God. 
and you're experiencing nothing but absence. You read the news that morning. You're mystified by what's going on in our world. God doesn't seem to know what he's doing if there is a God. He's left the building completely. We doubt that God is good. We doubt that God is committed to our joy and wholeness and healing, that God will reconcile, that God will redeem. And therefore, we end up like Jonah in these first moments, running to Tarshish, fleeing the hard thing. Uh, And we're fleeing from the mercy of God. So how are we like Jonah? And how can we respond in a maybe different, different way? That's my question for you this morning. I'm going to invite our worship team this morning up. Um, I actually texted Andrew yesterday, and uh, there he is. And so this is a song that is kind of taken from Psalm 139. Um, it'll be a new song to us. And uh, the refrain from this, if you're familiar with that song, is, Where Can I Go From Your Presence? Where Can I Run? Um, from you. And, uh, and so as, as we meditate on this idea that God is pursuing us, God's pursuing Jonah, and all we need to do is pause and allow him to enter into our lives and use us in these hard spaces we're called to. Um, my, my hope is that we might um, just experience from God um, a sense that he's with you, a sense that he's with us. I know y'all are in hard stuff. I'm not alone. Shoulder is just a, it's just a shoulder. <laughs> and some of you are experiencing much harder things and it's hidden. Nobody can see it. You've come here today. Put on your Sunday best. You feel pretty alone. So I guess my invitation to us is to open yourself to the Lord that he might, you might encounter him. You're not alone. Let's worship.